0: Well, hello everyone, my name is Catherine Barnard and I'm delighted to be here today with two fantastic guests who I'll introduce them in a moment, talking about the vexed, controversial, exciting issue of migration, a subject which is constantly in the news, particularly in the light of the new schemes for welcoming Ukrainian migrants and refugees, and also the new UK scheme for returning asylum seekers to Rwanda. And I can think of no one better to talk about these issues than my two marvelous colleagues, Catherine Costello and Catherine Bridick. Catherine Bridick is a lecturer at the Refugee Studies Centre at the University of Oxford. And Catherine Costello is Professor of Fundamental Rights at the Hertie School in Berlin, co-director of the Centre for Fundamental Rights, and also Professor Of international human rights and refugee law at the University of Oxford. Welcome to you both. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Now we hear the terms asylum seeker, refugee, illegal immigrant used a lot. And what I'd like to start with is a quick fire round. What do these terms actually mean? Asylum seeker, Catherine Bridick.
1: So an asylum seeker is someone who has exercised their right in international law to seek protection from persecution and other forms of serious harm, and their legal claim for sanctuary has yet to be determined.
0: Thank you. And Catherine Casella,
2: what's a refugee then? Well, in law, we have one relatively narrow definition, which we find in the 1951 Refugee Convention, which speaks about somebody who is outside her country of origin um, with a well founded fear of being persecuted on a list of political grounds. But there's also a wider notion of refugee also in law, which speaks about individuals who fled generalised violence or who are fleeing from serious human rights violations. In some regions, that wider concept of a refugee is also codified in international law or in international norms. That's the case in Africa and Latin America. And in Europe, we have additional statuses for the others, let's say, maybe even different labels. But I think it's important there's a 1951 convention definition and then a wider notion of refugee. And I'm quite comfortable calling all of these categories of people
0: refugees in law. Thank you. And what about resettlement scheme? That's a newer one to us.
1: So these are schemes that enable the transfer of refugees from the country that first granted them asylum to another state that agrees to admit them and then grant them permanent residence and potentially even citizenship. UNHCR is one of the entities that's involved in administrating resettlement. It's one way, just one way of enabling refugees to access and remain in jurisdictions that are safe.
0: Thank you. Now, we hear a lot about economic migrants, too, and those are thought to be a sort of lesser species. But what are economic migrants? Well,
2: economic migrant isn't a legal term, and neither is migrant, strictly speaking. But I think the term migrant generally is used as a very wide term to connote somebody who is living outside their country of origin. And on this view, refugees are a subset of migrants. Economic migrant connotes somebody who has moved because they have economic motivations. Of course, there's nothing wrong with that i'm here working in berlin many people work and live outside their countries of origin sometimes we think of eu citizens on the move across the eu as migrants and sometimes we don't so i think that exemplifies some of the ambiguity but yeah migrant is a very broad term it's certainly not a pejorative one many people migrate and exercise the right to to live and work in other countries
0: Thank you. And finally, temporary
2: protection. Well, here we have, especially given that we'll talk about the response to people fleeing Ukraine, a distinctive UK legal instrument, which is called the Temporary Protection Directive. So that's the particular legal instruments that's in the news, which offers people who are fleeing en masse, as Ukrainians have done, a particular temporary, very short, in fact, one to three years permission to stay. They may be refugees. The assumption is many of them are, but it forestalls that decision and allows them to enter and enjoy protection temporarily. But there's also a much wider phenomenon of temporary protection, which has a very long history where when people fled the Balkan Wars and fled to European countries, uh, many countries offered systems of temporary protection as well. But when we speak about it nowadays, it's generally speaking referring to the EU temporary protection system or the the variant of that that the EU is putting into force.
0: Yeah, that, which brings us very neatly onto the Ukrainian scheme, because obviously we're all very aware of the war currently taking place in Ukraine and the millions of people who've left Ukraine. Let's start with what the UK has done in respect of that group, um, Catherine Breddock.
1: So at the moment, there are two distinctive schemes. So one's the Ukrainian family scheme, which enables some people who are fleeing the war in Ukraine to join family members in the UK or extend their stay here. The second is the Ukrainian sponsorship scheme. And again, this enables some people fleeing Ukraine to arrive in the UK if they have a particular named sponsor who's in a position to offer them support. Essentially what these two schemes do is offer bureaucracy over sanctuary. They require people to apply for and then receive permission before they travel to the UK. Individuals have to jump over quite considerable administrative and other burdens, and we're seeing delays and inconsistent decision-making. So visas under both of these schemes are being granted, but in comparatively no numbers, if we think about what other European states are doing in this context. And essentially people who need it are not able to access safety in the UK. That's the kind of short-term picture. In the longer term, what these schemes do is offer an initial uh, permission to remain for three years, which gives them some rights in the UK, important rights, including the right to work and to study, for example. But what happens at the end of this three year period? At the moment, we're just not sure. A further immigration application will have to be made, but we're unclear what the legal position will be at that point and whether individuals who are currently being admitted to the UK will be able to secure permanent residence here.
0: Um, And why are we taking such a bureaucratic approach? Because, I mean, if you compare what you've just said with Poland, for example, that's taken sort of two to three million. Why are we taking such a strict line?
1: So the UK is an outlier in this respect, in that whilst other countries in Europe um, have lifted visa arrangements or have enabled people to uh, move freely and able to access protection the UK is still requiring people to apply for permission to enter and this needs to be seen in the context of a series of bespoke schemes for very narrow groups of individuals who have some kind of protection need it's not in line with the UK's international obligations to individuals who are fleeing war and other forms of persecution and they are incredibly costly um, and inefficient
0: And Catherine Costello, perhaps you can tell us a bit about how the EU has tackled this issue. I mean, the, the
2: major significant difference is that Ukrainians don't need a visa to enter the EU, but they haven't needed a visa since 2017. So there's been a visa waiver in place. And that, of course, changes everything, as well as the geographical fact that when people flee Ukraine, most of them are directly entering the territory of an EU member state, as you mentioned, principally Poland, but also Romania, Hungary, Slovakia. So that has really changed everything, because with previous refugee, so-called refugee crises in Europe, most refugees found themselves having to enter the territory of the EU irregularly, and that's not the case with Ukrainians. But notwithstanding that fact, I think then the EU also took unanimously, the Council took a political decision to trigger this temporary protection measure, which grants this temporary status, but also enables Ukrainians once they're in the EU to effectively travel freely and choose where they want to register for this status. And so, you know, somebody can flee from Poland. If they arrive in Germany, they'll get free train travel. They can then get on a plane to Dublin and simply register in Dublin airport and enjoy the protection status. Without any further bureaucratic hurdles. On the other hand, I do think it's worth just stepping back a little bit and recalling the fact that it's not entirely straightforward to leave Ukraine, both physically and materially because of threats in the war, but also because of the decree which the Ukrainian government put into place using its emergency powers, where it's illegal for men between the ages of 16 to 60 to leave. So there are serious impediments on the right to leave, which has
0: affected the gender composition, obviously, of the people who have fled the country. I mean, it's incredible how many people have come. It's incredible how, for example, Poland has been so welcoming to these But, of course, there are issues down the line, aren't there, that with, as you say, gender composition, women, primarily women with young children, they all need to go to school. And, you know, can you see the problems down the line with how Poland is going to manage to integrate these people and what's going to happen in three years' time?
2: This is really always the question with temporary statuses. I mean, I think what's already happening is there's a certain degree of circular mobility. So in the official UNHCR figures, 64 million people have left and 1.9 million have returned, which suggests that some people in Poland are staying quite close to the border and going back and forth, which is absolutely what normally happens in conflict situations. If one looked at Syrian population in Lebanon or Jordan, you'd have a very similar circulation. So the, the official term is pendular returns. These aren't sustainable returns. So some people may want to stay very close. I mean, it's really hard to say because obviously... You have the actual outcome of the war and the invasion, and then people's perceptions of, and, and the point at which they decide that return is not feasible, or that finding another place where they can really settle is what people want. We're not there yet. But of course, if if many millions of people decide to make their home elsewhere, that's it's an integration challenge, but it's one that Europe can handle. I mean, I, I think the, the political rhetoric and the political response is very different here, but you know, of the... You know, almost one million Syrians who fled in 2015. Their children go to school all across Europe. There's an integration challenge inevitably. I think in Poland, you might have issues about people choosing to move further west in Europe. If, if that's what they choose to do, there may be a point in which moving back to western Ukraine is a choice that people make. I really think it's it's sort of too early to say but yeah down the line there would be questions about security of residence or sustainability of return it really a
0: lot depends on the outcome of the of the war so ukrainian scheme is working it's working really well in the eu obviously we've heard quite a lot about the bureaucracy in the uk And I just want to stay in the UK for uh, now because I want to just think about another group of people who are coming to the UK. These are asylum seekers, primarily from African countries, Eritrea, but also Syria, Afghanistan, Iran. And we know that a number of them are arriving across the channel on dinghies. A couple of hundred people or so a day are arriving at the moment while the weather is good. I suppose my first question is, why are they coming? Is is the UK a a magnet for asylum seekers? Are they attracted by the fact that we have generous benefits and housing provision? Uh, What's bringing them to the UK?
1: So I think there are the three things I want to say about that. So the first thing is the language you're using. Are asylum seekers. And that's correct, because that's exactly the description that I've given you. But the populations we're talking about are people who will be recognised as refugees in the UK. So on home office statistics, for example, 81% of people who come to the UK from Afghanistan are given some kind of protective status. If we look at the other nationalities, um, Eritrea, it's 97%. Iran, you mentioned, 89%. Syria, 99%. So we're talking about people who are going to be recognised in the UK as refugees. Now, there's no requirement that someone who seeking protection in international law, makes a claim for asylum in the first country that they arrive in. The UK certainly um, is not any kind of magnet. Um, People are not sitting down making decisions about the countries that they're going to travel to or through. They're simply not in a position to do so. The thing that determines a person's ability to make a journey is the accessibility or not of safe or legal routes. And people are compelled to undertake these dangerous journeys because there aren't legal mechanisms by which they can, for example, reunite with family members or access a jurisdiction that's safe.
0: So that's really helpful. So the question then is, I mean, given that France is clearly safe, certainly a whole lot safer than Afghanistan, why don't they stay in France?
1: I think there are a number of barriers to applying for asylum in France. I think some of those are legal issues and some of those are practical issues. But again, there may be very good reasons why somebody might want to come to the UK. I've mentioned family members. That's one of the driving reasons why people would choose one jurisdiction over another In the very limited circumstances that they're able to make a choice at all. If you can't apply for permission in France to enter the UK legally to reunite with, for example, a brother or sister, then you may have no option but to undertake this type of journey.
0: But why is it predominantly men that are coming? Why
1: isn't it, as we've heard before with the Ukrainian scheme, women and children? Again, this comes back to the safe and legal routes question. These journeys are physically arduous. They need to be undertaken by people who have the means and capability of doing so. In many circumstances, this will preclude people who have caring responsibilities, for example. It precludes people with disabilities who uh, are largely um, unconsidered in these types of debates. It precludes children and older people as well. So when we see safe and legal routes being made available, then yes, um, you get a different and broader group of people who are able to access them. If people are required to jump on and off lorries, if they're required to climb walls, then it is going to be a different group of people who may be and and then only may uh, be able to undertake it. But just to say one more thing, that does not mean that this is not a very vulnerable group of people. The fact that someone is young, male and ostensibly fit does not mean that they don't have international protection needs and that they're vulnerable to exploitation or other kinds of harm.
0: So the UK has given money to France to try and keep some of these people in France. For those who seek asylum in the UK, and if they are unsuccessful, can they be sent back to France? Do we have returns policies?
1: Yes. So broadly speaking, if you don't have a legal basis for being in the UK, if you've made an asylum appeal, for example, and that appeal has been refused, then you'll be given a decision letter that requires you to leave and you can be taken into detention and you can be forcibly removed. Deportation, however, is no indicator of any kind of functioning asylum policy. If we wanted to know that, we might look at things like the percentage of cases that were overturned on appeal, because that could tell us something about the quality of initial decision making. Or we would look at the timeliness of decisions or we would look at um, access to legal aid. These are all the things that would tell us that the British or another asylum system was working as it should. Crucially, there's a a range of different types of academic research that suggests that things like uh, detention, returns, deportation, um, they're not associated with a decrease in asylum applications or with refugee arrivals. So...
0: We've got all of these people seeking asylum in the UK, and Catherine Costello, you helpfully pointed us to the 1951 convention. Of course, the world was a very different place in 1951. There wasn't climate crisis, and there weren't the same level of civil unrest wars in parts of Africa and Syria and so forth. Is the 51 convention still fit for purpose for um, a very different 21st century world?
2: Well, the convention was drafted in the aftermath of the Second World War, when there were millions of displaced people in Europe. And it was an instrument, a backward looking instrument for Europe's displaced persons. It didn't become a global instrument until after the 1967 protocol. That was really the the revolutionary moment. So the instrument has a definition of refugee, which has evolved a lot through interpretation and through interpretation guided by UNHCR and by courts. So I think it encompasses a lot of people fleeing conflict nowadays, whereas you know, 20 years ago there used to be an assumption that conflict didn't entail persecution on political grounds, and now we just understand conflict dynamics to include persecution, which can target people for reasons of imputed political opinion or religion. So it has evolved. There are certain things that it doesn't do because the drafters didn't really see that as something an international convention has to do. So what it really doesn't do is set up the degree of international cooperation that one would like to ensure equitable distribution of refugees or responsibility sharing. The drafters really drafted that convention after European states were able to cooperate globally to export European refugees around the world. So Europe's displaced population emigrated with the help of um, international organizations to Australia, all across Latin America, to North America, and not that many were left over to be integrated in Europe. And it was that population that the 51 Convention at that moment was really geared towards. And then with the development of the Cold War and the Iron Curtain, you had new arrivals from Eastern Europe as well, and and acceptance that they were by definition refugees. But it's in the 60s, again, at the time of wars of decolonization, that you get the globalization of the instrument, but also Africa stepping up and drafting a much wider African refugee convention, which means that most African refugees are in Africa, just as most African migrants are in. Africa. So, you know, I think Europe, (laughs) the UK is sitting right at the edge of Western Europe with tiny, minuscule numbers of refugees, making political theatre out of them to the detriment of the entire global refugee regime, which protects millions of people, mainly in poor countries. So, I mean, I think we really have to take both a historical and an empirical corrective pill to correct the corrosive discourse that's being, you know, given a lot of, obviously, coverage in the UK because of this Rwanda deal. But it's political theatre, it has nothing to do with an actual refugee crisis. Um, And I think it's also worth, I mean, just when I think about framing, just recalling the fact that, you know, even in years when the UK had relatively large number of asylum seekers, which it hasn't had for a very long time, comparatively speaking, in European terms, they also enter the UK irregularly, because there aren't legal routes to claim asylum but they did it in the back of trucks and so i mean there's something about small boats which it happens in canada australia makes better political theater and so when the pandemic meant that there weren't so many trucks to get into and that smuggling let's say agency transportation of irregular migrants from france to the uk really shifted into boats Um, You also had a different framing of the political theater, but I mean, I don't think anybody in the UK should have been particularly proud of the fact that most asylum seekers used to get to the UK in the back of a truck either. I mean, this is all generated by visas and asylum policies and carrier sanctions, which the UK and other European states maintain in force. Not for Ukrainians, though.
0: Is it worth just thinking about the numbers, you talk about relatively small numbers coming to the UK and much larger numbers in places like Lebanon, could you give us an idea of the figures? Well, I guess in Lebanon, somewhere
2: between one third and a quarter of the whole population are refugees. And the UK has one of the lowest proportions of asylum seekers, um, certainly within, within Europe in general. And that was also the case in 2015, where we had obviously a spike in arrivals across Europe with the arrivals of Syrians en masse. Very few of them went to the UK. The top host countries are Sweden, Germany. Per capita, Sweden has one of the highest refugee populations in the world. Germany has one of the largest refugee populations in the world now, and and the UK does not. So, um, yeah, so this is not driven by any sort of real appreciation of numbers of asylum seekers.
0: So just in numbers terms, I think that's right, isn't it? Germany had in 2020, 122 odd thousand, the UK had 30 or so thousand. It's gone up more recently, I think it's now about 48,000, but it still pales into insignificance compared to the numbers in Lebanon, Pakistan and elsewhere. We were talking about the attention that's been given to the Rwanda scheme. Catherine Britt, could you just tell us what the Rwandan scheme is and why is it so controversial?
1: So this scheme is based in an agreement, a memorandum of understanding, which seeks or purports to enable the transfer or forced removal of asylum seekers from the UK to Rwanda to have their claims determined. there in accordance with Rwandan asylum and immigration law. It applies to people who already are in the UK to anyone who arrived this year. In fact, it has two legal foundations. The first um, are the current rules, the current immigration rules and the inadmissibility criteria, which enable the Secretary of State to remove an asylum applicant to a safe third country under certain circumstances. Uh, But more importantly, the Nationality and Borders Bill. And this is the real context that we need to appreciate the agreement within. Because this legislation, amongst other things, criminalises people simply for seeking protection in the UK. It makes it harder for them to be recognised as refugees when they are here. And then it denies them key rights, including the right to family reunion. And it's provisions in this act that provide an additional or strengthened legal foundation for the UK's attempt to externalise its obligations to refugees. Now, what it will do, um, or what it is seeking to do is to create a two-tiered system where some asylum seekers will have their claims determined in the UK and receive the rights that go with that here, albeit a curtailed set of rights, but others will be uh, deported forcibly and have their claims determined in Rwanda, which is a distinctive, different political and legal context which creates the potential for rights to be violated.
0: If they are sent to Rwanda to be dealt with there, and if they were to give, get asylum under Rwandan law... It presume there's nothing to stop them leaving Rwanda.
1: Apart from the global rules on immobility that we have we've started to talk about um, in this session and all of the barriers to people moving uh, legally between states. So what's crucial is that people who are recognised as refugees in Rwanda, as you say, will stay in Rwanda. They won't have the opportunity to come back to the UK, for example. So they will face the economic and other barriers that refugees in that country are currently experiencing.
0: Um, and why Rwanda?
1: Rwanda is a country that has entered into agreements of this kind in the past. Um, Notably, there was an agreement with Israel, which was about particular groups of refugees. An arrangement has potentially been reached between Denmark and Rwanda as well. That has a legislative footing in Denmark, but it's not yet been operationalized. I... I think Rwanda is a country that has signed relevant international agreements, including the 1951 convention, as Catherine has said. And we know that those agreements have been given domestic effect in its asylum and immigration law what's of concern is the practical accessibility of those protective measures. So UNHCR, for example, in 2021, gave evidence to the Human Rights Council as part of something called the Universal Periodic Review Process. And that identified just one person in Rwanda who was able to conduct refugee status determination. So it's a capacity of one person. It also identified a number of other problems, including the inability for certain groups of people, including uh, people making claims for asylum on the basis of sexual orientation, to be able to make that claim at all. Um, and identified other issues around, for example, appeal processes and the independence of those appeals.
0: So is it legal to send individuals to Rwanda?
1: Oh, so the short answer I would say from the perspective of international human rights and refugee law is no. The longer answer is that different legal instruments of the international protection regime will be engaged in different ways and in different extents depending on people's personal circumstances and then the type of protection claim they're making. So I've talked a little bit about the Refugee Convention and Catherine has said that it sets out this definition of a refugee and then gives them important rights, including the right to work um, and free movement. Um, it also protects from reforma, um, forced return to a situation where somebody's life or freedom would be threatened. And certainly those protections are at stake for individuals who return to Rwanda. And also this idea that we're punishing people um, on the basis of their arrival in the UK, something that's potentially indirectly discriminatory on the grounds of race. But that's just one legal protective regime. We'd also want to think about the European Convention on Human Rights, its protection of family life and its broader protection from reform. And finally, the international trafficking regime, which grants individuals a very limited set of rights. But again, it's it's a set of rights that are unlikely to be vindicated or met in this context.
0: So, Catherine Costello, I wonder for all of the people who are coming on these dinghies from France, why can't we just process those applications in France rather than wait till they make the very risky crossing to the UK and then try and send them to Rwanda?
2: Well, this is effectively a a UK decision uh, to only allow asylum claims to be made once one is in the territory of the United Kingdom. But there's nothing to stop states having more accessible routes to asylum via embassies or, you know, via other sort of legal routes. So... um, It's perfectly possible to do that. And some states, I mean, used to have embassy procedures. This kind of very, very strict territorial approach to asylum has always been coupled with using many, many different mechanisms to prevent people reaching territory. It's just that the UK, because of its geographical location and its particular um, agreements with France and juxtaposed border controls in France, has made itself Completely impenetrable for people who would want to claim asylum. Back in I think 2016, the British courts ruled in a case called ZAT that there had to be a legal route. Um, this was when obviously the UK was still in the EU and was within when in, in the Dublin system. And that was supposed to have an access route for family members, but it didn't work in practice. And the British courts, when they were confronted with the personal stories of people who would have otherwise tried to make irregular journeys from Calais to the UK said that there had to be an access, a mode of legally accessing asylum. But of course, the UK never implemented that in any robust way. So states could have an asylum system without dangerous journeys. It's their policies, visas in particular, together with carrier sanctions that create the smuggling market for dangerous journeys.
0: So the UK government would say in response to that, well, this is what the Rwandan scheme is there for, to try and deter people from coming. With Catherine Bridick, is it going to work? Is it going to deter asylum seekers, refugees from coming to the UK?
1: The Home Office hasn't been able to provide any evidence that this will deter people from taking the journeys that we've talked about. And this is really clear. So the permanent secretary, Matthew Rycroft, wrote to the Home Secretary Priti Patel and said there wasn't any or sufficient evidence to demonstrate that this policy would have a deterrent effect. So what will it do? I think it will do two things. I think that policies like this that don't address some of the really chronic problems in the UK asylum system and people's real concerns around boat arrivals, they undermine public trust and confidence. And this is damaging. And and to pick up on a word that Catherine Costello used earlier, it's corrosive of public institutions. But more important, this policy is just cruel. It increases people's vulnerability to exploitation. It denies them protection in law that they're legally entitled to. And it treats people as commodities, trading their rights and freedoms for political and other gain.
0: But of course, it's not just the UK is doing it, as Catherine Priddick said, it's seen that Denmark is looking at it and other countries have been exploring. We know Australia has been doing something rather similar. What impact does all of this have on the global refugee regime, Catherine?
2: So I think since the end of the Cold War, one of the biggest and well-documented trends is certain states creating these barriers to asylum. So some of the leading scholarship by scholars like B.S. Chimney, um, or authors of books like with titles like Refuge Lost or Refuge Beyond Reach by David Fitzgerald really document this. And so what that means is that people who want to claim asylum, generally, Ukrainians accepted, have to make this invidious choice between staying close to home, which usually means in places that offer you very, very limited rights, particularly the right to work is not available for refugees. For example, if we're talking about Syrians in Lebanon, it's is a life of destitution, effectively, for many of them. Or even in Turkey, it's very difficult for Syrians to access the formal labor, labor market and access rights, even though that's the country that hosts the largest population of Syrian refugees. So you are faced with a choice. You eke out an existence like that, or you make an irregular journey. And so this is the global refugee regime. The UK is sort of adding even more cruelty into it. So and I actually think that alone might be just a reason to simply say no. I mean, can you imagine claiming asylum in a country which you assume is a a liberal democratic country that adheres to the rule of law and find yourself on a plane being deported to Rwanda, a country with which you have no connections? I mean, I think for the sheer cruelty of it alone, it should be rejected. So it has a corrosive impact. But the UK, is not, uh, in this moment, it's not inventing these practices. It's just copying them in more grotesque forms. There is a history of this from the US to Australia to some European states and now the UK. So the UK is coming late to a set of practices that have already been proven to be both ineffective and extremely costly seriously being confronted by human rights law. I think even in the case of Australian offshore detention, there's a very strong case to say that crimes against humanity were perpetuated. And the uh, prosecutor of the ICC who decided not to open an investigation against Australia did uh, accept all the evidence that the treatment there was uh, akin to torture and human integrating treatment in Australian offshore detention. So there is an accountability, an attempt to secure accountability for the atrocities that are being perpetrated. Now, for political reasons, the UK is situating itself here, mimicking these worst practices. Meanwhile, the rest of Europe is really, at least with the Ukrainian arrivals, seeing a different approach in action. And for me, the big question for the global regime, well, first of all, the global refugee regime isn't Europe. Most refugees are in the global south. And there are different dynamics, there are amazing practices emerging for Venezuelan refugees in Latin America, some good practice emerging in Africa. But if we look at the European space, I think the key question is, is the Ukrainian example going to be the exception that solidifies the exclusion for other refugees? Or is it going to become a model of good practice where refugee protection and mobility go hand in hand? And there, I think it's really too early to say. I mean, for me, the most vivid contemporary example is that, you know, the uh, Polish-Belarusian border still is a, a border with militarized policing and asylum seekers hiding out in the forest and being subjected to illegal degrees of violence, pushing them away, who are also the Afghans, the Syrians, people who would be recognized as refugees if they gained access to the territory. So, you know, and then Europe has a choice. Is it really going to say only yes to Ukrainians because we have a common enemy or we're proximate or we're more like each other? Or is it going to kind of genuinely renew
0: a commitment to refugee protection? Well, on that note, I would like to thank you both enormously for your time. Catherine Bridick, Catherine Costello, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you.